0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me again today is my co-host, Cindy Johnson, Operations Manager for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hello. This is the second of two episodes being released this week, focusing on subjects in Scotland. Today we're traveling up to Scotland's Northeastern Tip, near Dundee, to the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses, which is based at the Kinnaird Head Lighthouse. I had the pleasure of speaking with two very interesting people at the museum recently via Zoom, and we'll hear that conversation in a few minutes. First, Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Kinnaird Head Lighthouse and our guests.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Kinnaird Head Lighthouse is in Fraserburgh, a town in Aberdeenshire in northeastern Scotland. The original navigational light at Kinnaird Head was a simple lantern placed in a tower of a 16th century castle in 1787, installed by Thomas Smith of Edinburgh. Its whale oil lamps produced a powerful light that was seen for 12 to 14 miles to sea. The engineer Robert Stevenson, Thomas Smith's son-in-law and the grandfather of the famous writer Robert Louis Stevenson improved the lighthouse in 1822 and 1823 and there were further improvements in the early 1850s by Robert's son Alan Stevenson. In
0: 1902, a new hyper-radial lens was installed. The giant lens was larger than a first order Fresnel lens. It was one of nine hyper-radial lenses installed in Scottish lighthouses and they were installed in only two dozen so-called landfall lighthouses around the world. With the new lens, made in England by Chance Brothers, the light at Kinnaird Head could be seen up to 25 nautical miles.
1: The old lighthouse is no longer operational. It was replaced by a new automatic light next to the old one in 1991. The old light is still lit for special occasions. The old lighthouse keeper's house and other buildings are now home to the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses. The museum tells the story of the Northern Lighthouse Board, the engineers who built the lights, and the keepers who tended them. There's also a tea room at the museum and there's a wine tower close by that's also a major attraction.
0: Linda McGuigan is the museum manager with overall responsibility for the whole site including the staff, the lighthouse, the castle, and of course the museum itself. Linda has also just completed a PhD on her private passion, Pictish Stones.
1: Michael Strachan is the collections manager and also a published historian. He is responsible for displaying and taking care of the museum's nationally recognized lighthouse collection. And he is the author of three books, including Scottish Lighthouses, An Illustrated History and Kinnaird Head Lighthouse, An Illustrated History.
0: In early May, I spoke with Linda and Michael via Zoom. Let's listen to that conversation now. So I am speaking with Linda McGwigan and Michael Strachan at the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses. Thank you so much, Linda and Michael, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. How are things over in Scotland with the uh, the lockdown and social distancing and all that these days?
2: Well, it's, it's all a bit difficult, Jeremy, when I'm trying to run a museum and a castle and a lighthouse and... Presently, I've furloughed most of my staff, except for Michael and myself. Uh, Michael's my collections manager, so we remain in post, uh, looking after the collection and looking after the museum and looking to plan for the way out of this.
0: So Michael, uh, let me ask you, Could we, if we could start a little bit with some of the basic history here. Of course, your museum is in a lighthouse, which we're going to talk about but it's also attached to a castle. And if you could give us some of the the early history of that castle, maybe that seems like a a logical place to start.
3: Certainly. Well, the lighthouse is known as Canard Head, Castle and lighthouse. Um, So the castle has been there since 1570. It was built by Alexander Fraser, the laird of Florth. We think mainly just to be uh, almost like an ornament, something to be seen by the locals to let them know that he was in charge. So he chose to build his castle on the promontory at Kinnaird Head, so it's the most visible point, basically, in the town. So he's basically letting them know that he was the man in charge, he's the laird. So he didn't really intend to live in the castle, we don't think, Um, but then he went on to build a university in Fraserburgh. And when he did that, he bankrupts himself. So because he's got no money left, he has to sell off all, all his other properties, and the castle at Kinnaird Head becomes his home until his death in 1623. So it really did become the, the seat of the Frasers for that period. Um, after his death, the, the, the castle's not really used very much until maybe the, the 1670s, when it's basically used by one of the Lord Sultan, one of his descendants. The Covenanting Laird, I think he was the 11th Lord Sultan, in his old age he used the castle as his main main, main house while his grandson run the estate. Um, after that, from the 1720s, it's used as the dowager's house. So the dowager is the is the widow of the previous uh, lord. So we know it was used in that purpose until about the 1780s, uh, when the new uh, dowager refused to live there because the place was falling to bits. So that's really the history of the castle. Uh, nothing much really happened there. It's really just, just a residence, uh, so to speak. So there's no battles or or anything like that. So it's a very peaceful place rather than a a war zone. Could you explain
0: a a little bit more about the relationship between the castle and the the lighthouse?
3: Well, certainly. In my last answer, I did mention that the the last dowager refused to live at the castle uh, because it was in such a state of disrepair. Um, So that left Lord Sultan with a problem. Uh, He was the owner. Uh, He had this castle. He had to keep it up. Um, But nobody wants to stay there, so it's really throwing money away. And around about 1786, he decides he's going to make it into a private lighthouse. Uh, There was a lot of talk in the Parliament at the time about setting up lighthouses around Scotland, mainly for the, the benefit of trade. So he thinks, right, I'll set up my own lighthouse and I'll get the lighting dues. But unfortunately for him, in the same year, the Northern Lighthouse Board was established. Uh, they became the uh, the first agency in the world responsible for a nation's lighthouses. So there was no means for him to make it a private lighthouse. And uh, due to his um, canvassing a parliament, Kinnaird Head was named in the actual act of where the first light should be. So that meant the commissioners had to build a lighthouse somewhere at Kinnaird Head. So Lord Sultan, again, he's, he's thinking, well, I can make some money out of this. I have my castle. I'll try and sell them on the castle. Uh, but sadly, the price he wanted was too high. So the commissioners turn around and say, Well, actually, you can keep your castle. We'll build our little lighthouse somewhere over here in the a bit of land. Uh, and he kind of backs out of that, I think. So, well, OK, then. It would make more sense to use the castle tower. Uh, uh, and that's what they do. The main reason they're so keen to do that, of course, uh, Thomas Smith, the first engineer, he'd never built a lighthouse in his life, he was a lamp maker. So it made sense for him to take over Kinnaird Head Castle and simply construct a a lantern on the the castle roof. So that's really how it became the first lighthouse in the mainland of Scotland. It was pretty much by luck that we had this castle tower here already so that uh, the inexperienced engineer could then build a small lantern uh, and light on top of it. Uh, That all changed, of course, in the 1820s and 1822. uh, Robert Stevenson, the famous lighthouse engineer, he changed the structure completely, um, pretty much because I think it was more or less a way of covering up the very simple way they built the original lighthouses. By now, the Stevensons have a reputation to keep, so they'll get rid of everything that came before and build more professional lights. So, what Robert Stevenson did, he originally wanted to knock down the castle, but apparently he was stopped from doing that by Sir Walter Scott. So, what he had to do instead was build a brand new lighthouse tower through the heart of Kinnaird Head Castle. So that means today that we now have the only lighthouse in the world built inside a castle tower. Mm. That gives us a, a unique selling point, really.
0: So the Kinnaird Head lighthouse has many historic points. It was the first lighthouse on the Scottish mainland, yep, and it was the first to be managed by the commissioners of Northern Lights, right? Uh, And uh, as you said, uh, as you mentioned, it was the uh, the famous Stevenson family of engineers uh, involved in its uh, early history. Could you talk a little bit more about the involvement of the Stevenson family?
3: Certainly. Uh, I think Kinnaird Head again has the distinction of having been visited by every single Stevenson engineer. Uh, Every time they came here, they did something different. You know, they added something on or took something down. When I think of the Stevensons, I also include Thomas Smith in that. Uh, So the first engineer, Thomas Smith, he was the stepfather of Robert Stevenson. So as as we mentioned, Thomas Smith is the man who takes the first lighthouse to Fraserburgh by building that lantern on the castle. As we've also mentioned, when Robert Stevenson arrives in the 1820s, he builds the new tower through the heart of it. Uh, But then, if you just look uh, maybe less than 30 years later, uh, the site's then visited by Alan Stevenson. Uh, in 1851, Alan Stevenson removed the old lantern uh, to make way for Kinnaird Head's first uh, Fresnel lens, uh, a dioptric lens even. Um, so it was like a beehive of glass, uh, and it was the first lens we had here. Um, when Alan was here, he also noted that the, the accommodation for the keepers was not really up to scratch. Up until the 1850s, the keepers were still living in the old castle buildings, So if you can imagine, if the lady dowager didn't want to live there about 50, 60 years earlier, it must have been a bit of a a state by the 1850s. There is one sad thing here, that Alan Stevenson retires um, before the the buildings are actually replaced. And I think that's a real shame, because had Alan Stevenson built them, we may have had some Egyptian features here at Canard Head, but sadly sadly we don't. So the building of uh, the cottages was left to his brothers, um, David and Thomas Stevenson, uh, those cottages are still around today, so we've got that linked to them. And while they were here in the 1870s, they were also the first Stevensons to introduce the paraffin lamp at Kinnaird Head. So they introduced that here in 1874, and they used the paraffin lamp here all the way through until 1975. So that was a lasting thing they did here. And then finally, um, in 1902, uh, we have the last uh, Stevenson engineer of the board to come That was David Allen Stevenson. He was a cousin of Robert Louis, uh, and he's responsible for, again, replacing the lantern and uh, installing the hyper-radial lens we had here. Um, He also built the Foghorn in 1903. Um, So really, at Kinnaird Head, we've had the full complement of Stevenson engineers. Um, So again, that's something that makes us quite special. As we've kind of seen, they have a long history, so if you include Thomas Smith, uh, the Stevensons were building lighthouses for the Northern Lighthouse Board between 1786, and 1938 so they were around for over 150 years in lighthouse engineering type so they build the bell rock they build skerivore Duarte, all the famous lights you can think of in scotland were built by uh, the stevensons it's probably easier to list the ones they didn't build or so few <laughs>
0: That's true. Let's talk about the lens. Your lighthouse has one of the largest lenses ever made. You just made reference to it, Michael, a hyper radiant, or sometimes referred to as a hyper radial lens. Your lens was made by the Chance Brothers uh, Glass Company in England. Besides its tremendously large size, uh, what would you say is special about uh, your lens?
2: Our lens is the only hyper lens, certainly within Scotland. Um, which still rotates on a manned machine and uh, our staff actually operate the lens so when you come to visit, you can actually see the lens in operation. Um, It's one of only two hyperradials that still exist in their original towers and the other ones at Heisker. The design appears unique. Um, One side of the Bell Rocks hyperradial is very similar to that at Kinnaird Head. Um, and both lenses were installed in 1902 in their respective towers. It's a bi-order optic, which means that the bullseye is hyperradial, but the other um, prisms were set at first-order size, so possibly to make them fit into the existing towers, uh, because that's an interesting one, and I, I did discuss this with Michael about why that might be, theory is that it might be to make them fit in the existing towers. We hold in our collection um, three hyperradial lenses, uh, Bucheness uh, from Peterhead and Ruri from the west coast. It's um, at Museum now down on the west coast but it belongs to our collection and also Fair Isle North which uh, Michael and I went to Shetland a year ago, Michael now, Um, and acquired the Fair Isle North lens which we intend to build in the very near future and of course we look after the lens in Kinnaird Head so there are four hyper radials here at Kinnaird Head, three in the museum and one in the castle and lighthouse Um, and that we believe is the biggest collection of hyper radials that you can have anywhere. Other Hyperradials include Bell Rock, but that was destroyed in 1963. Uh, Flannan Isles, and we believe the glass was taken out of the metalwork. We believe the metalwork may still exist somewhere. Michael and I are quite interested in that, aren't we, Michael? We'd like to find some of that. Soul Scary, which is at the National Museum of Scotland, and uh, Plada. We're quite interested in Plada, too, on on Aran, it seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. So that's a bit of a mystery. So one that we quite like mysteries, don't we Michael? We quite like digging about and finding things to bring into our collection. Being a single flash hyperradial uh, design meant that this was the most powerful optic in the service of NLB. It was described as being the most powerful oil lamp in Scotland in 1908 by D.A. Stevenson, David Stevenson, due to the use of an 85mm incandescent lamp with the hyperradial size. Uh, um, Even our our lens is very special and pretty much a one-off as well. So yeah, we're very lucky to to have such a wonderful lens and have it operational in the tower where we can show that to people.
0: Absolutely. And the fact that you own four is incredible. I mean, each one of those a, is such a treasure.
2: Yeah, I did say Rudy was here. It's not. It's in the museum in the West mm-hmm. Coast. But but yes, it, it is a huge collection of hyper lenses.
0: So here's a question for you, Michael. I was reading that something uh, happened, or I guess almost happened at the lighthouse during World War II. Uh, could you tell us about that?
3: Certainly. Um, During the war, uh, lighthouses did become targets for the Luftwaffe. It wasn't really expected before the outbreak of war, but um, due to them helping the convoys, uh, some of them were certainly targeted. Uh, We don't actually have any evidence that Kinnaird Head was an actual target during the wartime. Uh, But we did have a wee problem, um, because our lighthouse at Kinnaird Head was right next door to McConaughey's factory. And that factor was making uh, food supplies, canned food supplies for the war effort. So that was certainly on the Luftwaffe's hit list. Uh, We also had uh, the pneumatic tool works in the town, which were making munitions. So again, that made Fraserbra something on the map that the the enemy planes were quite keen to get if they were passing overhead. Um, So it led to the town being known as Little London, where we were bombed so often. So, in amongst all that, the lighthouse uh, kind of got in the way. Um, so, certainly, there were two direct hits on the factory next door. And then during those direct hits, uh, the lighthouse site was damaged. And lots of the windows were broken uh, with, the, with the blast. And some of the roofs were all cracked as well. But there was one interesting uh, episode during the wartime. It's, it's a strange one because there's some damage on the lens at Kinnair's Head. And I'd always been told it was caused by uh, by gunfire during the war. And I, I looked at it and I thought, there's no chance that was done by gunfire. I've seen the lens uh, from Rattray Head. That's in the museum in Aberdeen, and that is annihilated. So had we been shot by by a gun, there's no chance uh, the, the damage would be so light. So I was saying this on a tour one day. They uh, often say, well, there's some damage up there. It was said to be done during, during the war, but I don't think that. I can't find any evidence And on one of these tours, uh, a lady in the background said, oh, no, it's true. And I said, all right, how do you know that? And she said to me, well, my father, he was a lightkeeper here when it happened. So uh, she told the story of how uh, if the enemy aircraft even had bullets, they would open fire and and kind of straff the buildings as they came past. And on one of those occasions when they were shooting at people on the ground, uh, one of the bullets ricocheted and hit the lens uh, through, the, through the lantern. So we do have our own Hitler's mark on uh, the lens here at Canard Head. Um, there are other episodes. Um, again, the, the lady who was there, she, her father once found uh, a lady under the, the ladder to the light room during the wartime. She'd lost her memory completely. What appears to have happened, she'd travelled by bicycle and she appears to have followed the light to Canard Head. And nobody really knows the story. Some people thought she was a spy. Uh, other people just say, no, no, she was unwell. So it's another mystery of Kinnaird Head um, during the wartime.
0: Linda, uh, this is a question for you. I understand uh, there is a fog signal there, but I also understand that it's no longer active.
2: Um, yeah, we have a foghorn on site, intact. Um, it sits down on the rocks in front of the castle and the lighthouse. Um, it's locally known as the Castle Coup, um, the one in Aberdeen at Girdle Nest Lighthouse was known as the Torrey Coup because it's in, in a little um, area called Torrey in Aberdeen. And our, our foghorn has lots of stories, I've heard lots of stories from locals about the foghorn and, um, and their experiences of the foghorn when they were young and in bed at night so or sitting beside the foghorn sometimes um, getting blasted by the signal. It doesn't run anymore. Um, We believe there's a break or a blockage somewhere between the air receiving tanks and the foghorn. It's something I would like to get running again uh, certainly before I retire which will be in the next year or two so I would really love to to get it going again uh, before I go um, it blasts, seven-second blast every 90 seconds, and it's a diaphone foghorn, um, so siren type, and you can hear it for between 15 and 18 miles out to sea, so quite effective, actually. Yeah, and it was in operation from 1903 to 1987.
0: I hope you can get that running again. That would be wonderful. Yeah,
2: I'd love to. I'd love to, Jeremy. Um, we'll send you a recording if we manage.
0: Oh, that'd be fantastic! I'd love to hear it. I've heard a couple of those old horns, and you you want to get your ear earplugs uh, ready? Sure. To get it off. Sure. Ready. We
2: have it on a video. We do have um it on a on a short video. The folk horn running.
0: The uh, wine tower is something I'd like to hear more about. It sounds really interesting. I'm not entirely clear on what the wine tower is.
2: Sure, that's a million dollar question. What is the wine tower? We'd all love to know the answer to that. There are three different theories of what it might be. And it it sits on the rocks. If you're up on top of the castle, you can get out on the castle roof. And if you're on top of the castle, it's to the the right-hand side down on the rocks in front of the castle and the lighthouse as well. Um, It's a fabulous building, dates we think to 1570. A similar sort of period, we think, to the castle. Uh, not an exact science, but that's the date. It's certainly the oldest building in Fraserburgh. It has some uh, very unique, uh, wonderful hanging plaster bosses in in the cha- in the wine tower. There is a theory that it was a chapel, or that it was just a sort of a room to use. Um, he he built the ha- he built the first harbour here that right, Michael? He did, didn't he? And yep. it would have been used maybe um, to oversee the works because if you look to the right-hand side from the wine tower, you're overlooking the harbour. So it could be that he used it as a sort of a place of comfort um, during that uh, time that he was building the castle and he was building the harbour. So it's a wonderful building and um, and we love it. But the best thing about it is um, it has a lovely legend It's built straight on the rocks, and there's a cave in the bottom, which you can't get into now, but it has this wonderful uh, legend. So we have our very own Romeo and Juliet story in Fraserburgh. And could you tell us that legend? Sure. Um, It's a very old motif, um, a storytelling motif that appears in, um, oh, over hundreds of years, this motif appears of a beautiful woman marrying the wrong person. and. Uh, the powers that be, her father not agreeing with it. So the story goes, um, and there are different versions around the town. Um, We we hear different versions of it, uh, but the core uh, thread through the story is the same. Um, So beautiful girl, she's the Laird's daughter, and he wants her to marry well. Um, Of course, she uh, falls in love with the castle Piper, and he doesn't really want her to marry him, So he decides uh, to to lock the piper in the cave and to lock her in the tower. So it's a bit of a Fraser Rapunzel story in there. And he has a few whiskies and forgets about her uh, and the piper. And sadly, there's a big storm and the the waves come in and they uh, drown him. And forevermore, you can hear the howl of the pipes round about the wine tower. And she throws herself out the window um, because she, she realises that he died. And um, keepers used to paint the red rock. There's still a bit of red on the rock um, at the at, on the rocks um, w- beside the window. So we, are, we, are, we have thought about repainting it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because, um, but it's a great story. Um, but I think it's a very old motif. Um, yeah, there are different versions, aren't there, Michael?
3: Well, yeah, everyone's got their own version, certainly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very sad, but very romantic story. uh, This is a question I I think I should probably direct to Michael. Uh, We talked earlier about the the hyper-radial or hyper-radiant lens uh, actually in your lighthouse there, but you also have a really impressive uh, collection of uh, lenses in your museum. Michael, could you tell us about the lenses in your museum, about uh, how many you have and maybe uh, what some of the unusual lenses you have in your collection are.
3: Certainly. Um, we were very lucky that we were you know, we were helped quite a lot by the Northern Lighthouse Board. Um, in the 1980s, uh, they had many redundant lenses lying around their stores in Edinburgh and at various lighthouses. So when the chance came to open a museum, they took the opportunity to send all their lenses up here to to help the museum out, really. So we have uh, 18 major lenses in our collection, we have dozens of 4th order lenses, and uh, we have a a set of 4 major reflectors as well. So we think we probably have the largest collection of lighthouse lenses anywhere in Europe, Uh, perhaps even the world, we don't know, but we presume perhaps even the world. Um, So we do have a few, well they're all really different, the ones we have on display. We do have one or two doublers as we call them, but the ones on display in the museum they're all a bit different. Um, so one of the fairly unusual ones is uh, from Fair Isle South. South. Um, that has got uh, condensing vertical prisms. And so the, the vertical prisms would cause a flash. Um, so this was designed, it was really Thomas Stevenson's invention, but this particular lens is uh, designed by his nephew, um, David Allen Stevenson. So the idea was the central lens would stand still and these vertical prisms would rotate around the lens to create the beams and the flash from from there. So it's a fairly beautiful thing, Uh, whenever you pass it, you see all the colours of the rainbow as you go by, and it really is a favourite of many of our visitors. Uh, Another interesting one is uh, the lens from Sanda. Uh, That uh, was really a contribution of two separate Stevenson engineers, Um, so the central part was again stationary, Uh, that was installed in the tower by Alan Stevenson in 1850. But of course, as time moved on, they wanted more flashing lights. So in 1882, uh, again, it was Thomas Stevenson who introduced uh, these revolving prisms uh, to condense the light into to beams again. So they're probably two of our more unusual ones. But uh, I think out of all of them, uh, my favourite one on display is the one from the Isle of May. Um, so it's a first order lens. It's not quite the hyperradial, but it's still quite impressive. Uh, again, it's a single flash, so it would uh, have its own. It would have a very powerful flash uh, when it was being used. And uh, allegedly, I'm not sure if I believe this, allegedly it was the strongest light in Scotland. But how on earth it could be the strongest light when we had a bigger lamp and a bigger lens, I don't know. I presume they just said that because it was the commissioner's lighthouse, so it has to be Mm -hmm. the most powerful. Uh, The story of how it it came here is quite interesting as well. Uh, When it was removed from the tower, uh, this lens was kept at the bottom of the lighthouse uh, for a number of years. And when it uh, was uh, taken by the, the museum, it was uh, recovered by Jim Oliver, a former lightkeeper, And uh, he took it across bit by bit in a rowboat. And apparently it was so heavy, uh, the water was almost coming over the sides of the boat and almost sinking it. So even the story of how it came here is quite uh, impressive.
2: The one as you come into the lens room, Michael, the name escapes me. The little one as you come in.
3: Oh, Corn Point.
2: Yeah, Corran Point. Um, that's one of my favourite aesthetically just to look at it's a very beautiful little lens Um, it's fourth order um, but it is a really pretty little lens but my other favourite is definitely Neist Point on Sky Um, and it is really absolutely a thing of beauty and it it looks like C-3PO in Star Wars or some people think it looks like an owl I think you can see either in it Um, And I'm always fascinated about the invention of C-3PO because in that film, um, these lenses would have been in existence before the idea for C-3PO came up. And have a look at it, Jeremy. It absolutely looks like C-3PO. So I always wonder if the person who designed C-3PO had actually seen this type of lens.
0: That certainly could have been one of the inspirations. I'm picturing him in my mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it could. So I'd love to know if he had seen a lens like that one.
0: Yeah. By the way, we're recording this on May 5th, and yesterday was Star Wars Day. Uh, It was. May the 4th be with you, of course. Yes. You knew that. (laughs) (laughs) When Michael, you said uh, you think you may have the largest collection of uh, Fresnel lenses in the world. If there is a, a larger collection in the world, I don't know where it is. When people hear this, if any of our listeners know of a, a larger collection, please uh, they can they can post a comment on the uh, Lighthouse Society uh, news blog, or they can email me at jeremy at uslhs.org and let us know if they know of a larger collection because I would I would love to know. But I I know of no larger collection in the United States or anywhere else that I'm aware of. So
2: yeah, we're just. I, I guess we're just a bit wary of saying it. We know right. that we have the largest collection in Europe, for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm trying to do mm-hmm. at the moment, Jeremy, is mm-hmm. um, I have virtual reality filming of our lens room and of the lighthouse, and I'm looking to put those virtual tours online so that people can, for a small fee, purchase them and be able to go and have a look around. So oh, that- that's something thing. That might be coming up in the next uh, two or three weeks. Yeah, keep your eye open on our Facebook page for information about that.
0: Right. Well, again, I'll mention that we're recording this in early May, but uh, this will be posted. Uh, this uh, episode of the podcast will be actually released in uh, it'll be about the middle of June when people will be hearing this, mid to late June. So maybe by the time people hear this, the, what you're talking about, those virtual reality tours will be available. So
2: yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. Uh, people can look that up. Uh, this uh, question is directed uh, at both of you. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about what some of the other most, uh, interesting, I'm sure there's a lot you could talk about, but some of the more prominent uh, artifacts in the museum besides the lenses.
3: Michael, do you want to go first? Certainly, yeah. as, as you mentioned, we've got uh, lots and lots of uh, objects to choose from. And uh, it's funny, I think we've all got our own favourite ones as well, uh, amongst the staff. But certainly the one that comes to my mind really is uh, the mechanical lamp, uh, which was made in the 1840s. Um, so being of that age, it's uh, full of very much uh, classical design. So it's, it's made of highly polished brass and copper. So even that looks stunning. And it's decorated uh, with lion's heads and it stands in bull's feet. Um, so it's a very impressive thing to look at. So again, we might uh, send you a picture just to uh, let you have an idea of what it looks like. Uh, your listeners might be more aware of it as being called uh, the Skerryvore of Ore Lamp. Um, it's called that because it was featured in um, Alan Stevenson's account of the building of Skerryvore Lighthouse. So if you've, if you've read that book, it's the one in the, in the drawings. Uh, they are quite rare now, uh, we know of only two others in museums in Scotland and there's a couple more in private hands, um, so they're, they're very stunning to look at really. Um, so it's uh, proper Alan Stevenson, over-the-top designs and we we, we love that here. Um, these lamps, the reason they're so rare really is they were all removed from their lighthouses at the turn, of uh, the last century so in about 1900 to 1905 is when they're all replaced uh, when the incandescent lamps are brought in and of course back in those days things weren't saved for for posterity they were just thrown away so sadly a lot of them we think were were destroyed and um, we've also got other uh, technological things another favorite is uh, the the parabolic reflector uh, from the time of thomas smith um, so again, these are the first ones that were used in lighthouses like uh, Kinnaird Head, Ealing Glass, uh, Mulligan Tyre, uh, and North Um So to have one of them is fantastic. Uh, the one that we have it was actually destined to go to the National Museum. But thankfully, our friends at the Northern Lighthouse Board uh, had a word and says, well, actually, it was a loan to them, you see, and they said, but we don't want you to have that. We want that to go to Fraserburgh. Uh, and so thankfully, it came to our, our museum for our visitors to come and see. I don't think that's ever been off display, so that'll give you an idea of how precious it is to the museum. And we've also got example, an example of a later reflector, one of Robert Stevenson's, so the the copper bowl with the, uh, the silvered uh, reflective uh, face. Um, so again that was the type of uh, reflector that was used in the first Bell Rock. So things like that are quite precious uh, for people to understand where it all started and how things progressed through time.
2: Uh, Some of my favourite objects, I uh, did um, a little video the other day about uh, a knitting machine and um, the social history of lightkeepers really interests me. I mean, it was a very technical, very difficult job, especially if you were on um, a rock station. And they did have a bit of free time. And so you generally found that they always had different hobbies and different crafts that they did. And these could range from woodworking, metalworking, um, knitting, sewing, uh, drawing, painting, all sorts of things. So one of the items that we had donated from a family was um, from the family of Thomas Leslie. And it was his knitting machine. It's an Imperia knitting machine dating to 1910. Um, It's circular, so it's a sock knitting machine um, in the same box with it when we got it it uh, was other parts of another machine so we do wonder whether he had another knitting machine that he used for other items um, but he knitted socks it had a wind handle and um, he knitted socks on it so we do have uh, one of his socks that he knitted which is fabulous um, we also have the notebook uh, that he kept his orders in and he had measurements of feet and sock sizes and He knitted different kinds of socks. He knitted women's socks, gents' socks, football socks, ankle socks, and uh, knee socks. So it's fabulous. Um, It's a wonderful piece of social history of light keepers. And that history really is something that I want to collect more of because I think, you know, we were so busy collecting all the technical stuff that we missed, you know, a lot of that stuff. So we are collecting it where we can. Um, and trying to build up that picture of life on a rock station or indeed life for the families on the land stations because I think that's another interesting uh, thing. So the knitting machine, um, we have other items. Uh, we have ashtrays were quite common um, and things like clocks made from foghorn. We've got a clock made from a foghorn pressure gauge um, by Jim Oliver, who was the last lightkeeper here. So we have some fabulous uh, of that sort of social items um, that I really like. Um, The other thing that we have that I'm very fond of are um, the two flags that were embroidered by Jane Stevenson, we think, Robert Stevenson's daughter. And we think she was doing them while she was taking dictation from her father uh, when he was building the Bell Rock. And he wrote a book about the building of the Bell Rock And it would appear that these were being done at the same time. We've worked out from the dates that we have that we think it took her somewhere like eight or nine years to create them. They are absolutely stunning. As a sewer myself, they are absolutely stunning. And they're very precious because there is no others of these. One was on the the Bell Rock and we think one was on the tender ship, And they would be used to adorn the table for sunday services which was something that was really important to robert and indeed he had his own bible which we have here and it has a, it, it's an annotated bible so it's really interesting as well and that's another object that i'm quite fond of um, we have a collection of bibles um, obviously the service was quite religious during the 19th century here in scotland and we have a, a, a tiny little bible it's a finger Bible. I have searched other collections in Scotland and I can't find any reference to any other collection having such a tiny Bible as this one. It's about twice as thick as your thumb and it's just a fabulous little New Testament uh, Bible. And it belonged to a keeper who was at Ardnamurchin, amongst other stations. So, yeah, we've got some fabulous items. And um, Michael and I are making a series of little videos which will. Appear on Facebook over the coming weeks and we're choosing different items and we're doing a little two to three or four minute videos about them so that people can share them.
0: So again we are recording this in early May uh, while there's uh, this we're kind of in the midst of this lockdown uh, all these measures that are, have been taken because of the COVID-19 pandemic And I know at this point, it's hard to say when the museum will reopen, hopefully not in the too distant future. You've mentioned some of these videos you're doing and the virtual reality tours and that sort of thing. Uh, Anything else you want to mention? Anything that's in the works that you're working on in lieu of the museum opening?
2: Sure. Um, The other thing that I'm working on at the moment. So um, we're producing these little videos of different items and I'm looking to... um, put our virtual tours, make them available to purchase and to do a a tour um, of the the museum or the lighthouse. I'm also producing calendars and uh, we're just about ready to go to print with them. I'm hoping to get them to the printer by this week um, so they should be available to purchase by the end of next week. Calendars, two different kinds of calendars using some of our archival photographic collection as well and um and also some notelets some little notelet cards and michael's been doing a series of posts on facebook we've been taking a virtual tour around the coast of scotland looking at different lighthouses and just giving a little bit of information about the character of the light you might have seen them jeremy um so we're going to put them together in a little booklet um that's quite small that you can chuck into your rucksack and carry around with you as you go around the lights. And it gives you who built it and what the character was and a bit of information about it. So we've got lots of things going to the printer. Um, actually, d- despite being closed, I'm very busy and so is Michael. So um, yeah. yeah, we've got lots of stuff going on.
0: That's great. And uh, by the time people hear this, some of these things there will be uh, items available uh, people sure. can purchase uh, through your website. Is that correct? Yes,
2: and it's um, oh. important to stress that what we're what we're doing is producing these in response to this pandemic in order to try to help to support us through this uh, terrible situation sure. that we're in. Yeah, and can, can so people will items- directly be helping us. Um, mm-hmm. They will directly be helping us with this, uh, looking after the collection and keeping us going
0: can these items be shipped internationally to the united States?
2: sure yeah there would be postage with that but yeah yeah i'm happy to i'm happy to do that
0: among those items are michael's books will michael's books be available
2: we could we could send michael's books that wouldn't be a problem we would just have to charge a postage i'm not sure what the postage would be on something like that but I have no problem with uh, shipping Michael's books. We're always happy to sell books.
3: Okay. To get them here, to get them signed. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah.
0: I might but have I'll to consider that. I know uh, Michael uh, did a book on Scottish lighthouses, and also yeah. one uh, on the Cunard Head uh, Lighthouse,
2: and one on the Bell Rock,
0: and one on Bell Rock also. Yeah. Sounds, uh, all three of those sound mighty, uh, signed copies of those sound mighty tempting. Well, the thing
3: that makes them very good is the fact that I was uh, given permission to use our collection. So you'll see lots of our images in the the books. So it's, uh, that's. Yeah, and I was, I
2: was um, happy to to let Michael use any of our archival materials um, in, in production of the books, because the museum does benefit from the sales of the books too.
0: Right. And that makes them very um, special for sure. It does.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed.
0: So Linda, let me ask you to, we're shift, to shift gears for a moment here before we uh, finish up. Uh, you just completed your PhD. Congratulations on that. <laughs> uh,
2: I did indeed. Yeah. I did, indeed. Uh, um,
0: on your private passion, your uh, other passion besides uh, lighthouses and the museum there, uh, which is Pictish Stones. I'm sure it's hard to explain briefly, but if you could uh, try to explain briefly for our listeners what Pictish stones are, and also I understand there's kind of a connection connection between Pictish stones and uh, the lighthouse there.
2: Sure, yeah, um, it's uh, quite a fascinating. I always thought it would be nice once I came here to try to find some connection between my two loves, um, and uh, and indeed. Something turned up, which was fabulous. It's it's something I might do a bit of research on uh, later. Um, when I've got more time. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, the Picts. Geographically, the Picts are the people who lived north of the River Forth and the River Clyde Estuary up the east coast. They're particularly an east coast phenomenon, although there are one or two sites on the west, but n- nothing very much. Um, And on the east coast, so you get Perth and Kinross, Angus, uh, Aberdeenshire, um, Murray, Caithness, Orkney, Shetland. That's the places where you will find uh, the majority of Pictish stones. Um, We first hear about them in written history in a panegyric and. Um, We think it was written by uh, a a classical writer called Eumenius in 297 AD, and he writes about Picti and other Caledonians. So we know that they are part of a conglomeration of early Iron Age tribes, uh, known to us all as the Caledonians. but these were sufficiently different and sufficiently uh, warranted having a separate name and they called them Picti. So they said Picti and other Caledones. Um, So we think they were one of uh, the tribes that were recorded by Ptolemy um, in Ptolemy's map. There's little evidence about them. There's a couple of that reference. And, um, and and then we also have some evidence in the annals of Ulster. I love the annals. Um, you can get some of them online and they're worth looking at. Um, the annals, are they're a bit like the newspaper of the day. So they record little headlines like uh, you know, uh the King of Ireland died today or the King of Scotland was crowned today. There's all sorts of um, you know, uh well it wasn't Scotland at the time, but there's all sorts of little headlines um that gives you a glimpse into it's like it's like reading only the headlines. So the annals of Ulster and the Annals of Tiernach are the two that mostly talk about the picts. We have some references in The Life of St. Columba, written by Adivnan as well. So there are a few references there as well about Picts and a few stories about them. The the biggest amount of evidence we have for the Picts are their standing stones. um, And their standing stones are carved. We also have, uh, and they're carved with a set of symbols, very similar to uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. But unlike the hieroglyphs, we don't yet have a Rosetta stone that tells us the meaning of these symbols. So it still really is a big mystery, um, but they're fabulous. Some of the symbols are recognisable. They they would seem to appear in pairs often. We have salmon, we have uh, bulls. And all sorts of animals, some mythological animals like griffins, and one that is particularly peculiar to the Picts, and uh, we call it the Pictish beast. You can Google that and have a look, um, but also abstract symbols that relate to uh, crescents. And so they have kind of arcane names that were given to them uh, by the people who were discovering them during the 19th century. Um, I mean, I think they realised pretty quickly during the 18th and 19th centuries that if they were going to write a history of Scotland, that we didn't have really the written paperwork uh, enabled able to do that, uh, like the classical world. So they were going to have to do it from the monuments. And so they really started to collect them during that period. Um, So look them up. They're absolutely uh, my favourite thing in the whole world, um, second to... None. And lighthouses follow, I'm afraid. <laughs> but um, Google it, Pictish Stones. And Picti in Latin means painted people. So absolutely fascinating stuff.
0: And what what is the connection to the lighthouse?
2: Sure. Um, d- during the 19th century, uh, some of the uh, designers and builders, uh, like Alan, Alan Stevenson, it was a time when they were struggling to understand more of the history of Scotland and they were using the monuments like I said and um, but at the same time they were very interested in Egyptian history and you that's the time when things were turning up and being brought back here from Egypt so everybody was quite fascinated with the classical images and you see Alan Stevenson using some of those classical images on the lighthouses and some of the design Uh, if you look at Lighthouses like Arnhemurchen, Girdle Ness, Cove sea they all display very Egyptian-like imagery. And ventilator covers in lighthouses are one of my particular interests, um, because the ventilator covers uh, display little goddess heads or little lion heads, and you get little snakes sometimes climbing up the ladders on the side of the lighthouse, on the side of the towers, and you know like lion feet uh, instead of just a plain banister you get the foot of a lion um, on the bottom and so things like that are very influenced by the classical world and if you look at some of the Pictish uh, symbol stones particularly the Christian era you'll see they also are very influenced by the classical world uh, because the engineers uh, during that period had a big interest in in the classical world. And indeed, Alan Stevenson studied classics. Uh, That was part of what he studied, I think, at Oxford or Cambridge. can't remember which.
0: That's neat you were able to tie those those things together.
2: Yeah, nice, isn't it? I love that.
0: So I just have a a final question for you, and this is uh, directed at both of you. Uh, This is for bonus points. This is a toss-up. We could start with either of you the question is what do you enjoy most about your work at the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses?
3: Well there are many things I enjoy about my work and I'm not just saying that because my manager's here. <laughs> um, the first thing really is uh, we have a very good staff here we all get on very well you know we're all very keen in lighthouses um, so it's a fantastic place uh, to work you know you don't worry about getting up in the morning sort of thing and if you do check our TripAdvisor you'll see that comes through with our visitors as well they do enjoy uh speaking with our staff and uh you know the friendliness of the, the the place really uh going on from that uh it's nice to meet new people you know we get everyone you could think of through the door here in Fraserburgh uh, you never know who you're going to meet from one day to the next so some days it's um people undertaking certain challenges like they're you know, taking a gap year to go around uh, Scotland or whatever. But I particularly enjoy meeting light keepers and light keepers' families. Um, A lot of the staff, they do get a bit intimidated when a keeper comes on their tour. But I always tell them, make the most of it and learn from them. You know, ask them questions. That's what I do. That's how I learned. If you don't know the answers yourself, ask somebody who will know. Uh, And the other thing, there's always something you hear. Happening at the museum, so it's it's you know one day is never the same as as last, so it's never the same.
2: And, and like Michael, for me, uh, over the I've been here about five and a half years now, and we've built a really good team. And um, these guys stay with me. Um, most of my staff are on furlough at the moment, apart from myself and Michael, and we're just keeping things going so that we can get everybody back up and running again and look after the collection. Obviously, that's my priority, but. Uh, Like Michael, um, I love coming to work in the morning. It's never a chore to get up and come to work. In fact, it's a chore at the moment that I can't do that every day. I'm working from home some of the time, Um, but my staff are fabulous. And like Michael says, check out our TripAdvisor and you'll see people actually pick up on that feeling of friendliness and that family feeling that we have in the museum. One of the, the things that I really enjoy about my job is the work that I do in the community. Um, And I'm a great believer um, that a collection, um, if it's only a collection of old stuff in a building, then it really isn't uh, worth having and you should dig a hole and put it in. A collection should really work for the community in which it lives. And we should be using collections to give people a sense of place and a sense of their own culture and a pride in, in their own culture and their own background. And kids need a reason to think, wow, look what we've got in Fraserborough that makes us special. And indeed, we have. We've got the first ever lighthouse on mainland Scotland, the only castle in the world with a lighthouse built through it. So lots of reasons why our children and our young people should feel proud to be brought up here in Fraserborough. And we need to use our collection to um, to enhance people's view of of the world and of their own area, uh, I do lots of work with Discover Fraserborough. so you can Google that and have a look at our website. There's some cool information there about our area and what else you can do when you're here.
0: Both of you mentioned just the the friendly atmosphere in the museum and sure. all that, and uh, I'll tell you that certainly comes through through uh, the magic of uh, technology. Just spending this time with you, you know, doing this this interview.
2: It's a wonderful place to work and we all love it and, and we all look out for each other. And it is, it's, there's a really nice, warm feeling here with, with the staff.
0: Thank you so much, Linda McGuigan and Michael Strachan, for spending this time with me. I've really enjoyed it and I know our listeners are going to enjoy it. And I look forward to visiting you in person. Again, We'd love
2: to see you, Jeremy. Um, just let us know and um, we'll set up some cool stuff for you to see.
0: Thank you both.
2: Okay. Thanks for your call. Thanks again
1: to Linda McGuigan and Michael Strachan of the Museum of Scottish Lighthouses. For more information, go online to lighthousemuseum.org.uk.
0: As always, we thank everyone who is working to preserve our lighthouses and their history and everyone who is working to save any kind of history. In difficult times like these, there are lots of important causes that deserve our attention. Historic preservation is not at the top of everyone's list, but hopefully people don't forget about it. Preserving history is always important if we're going to hold on to a sense of who we are.
1: The author and historic preservationist Steve Berry wrote, Quote, a concerted effort to preserve our heritage is a vital link to our cultural, educational, aesthetic, inspirational, and economic legacies. All of the things that quite literally make us who we are. Unquote.
0: And when you think about it, that quote especially applies to lighthouses. They teach us about our maritime history while they inspire us as symbols of hope and guidance. There's really no other class of buildings that provide this dual function of education and inspiration, which is part of what makes Lighthouses so special.
1: Thanks also to all the staff, volunteers, members, and board members of the United States Lighthouse Society and all its chapters and affiliates. For more information on the society and everything it has to offer, visit the website at uslhs.org.
0: As always, thanks for listening and...
1: Keep a good light.